So again, I just want to welcome you today. Uh, we are leaning into a journey through the biblical book of Daniel that we started like seven weeks ago. And it's interesting to me, um, when we first launched into this, we met some of the primary characters, Daniel and some of his friends, and they were just teenagers. And they were teenagers who had been exiled, like forcibly removed from their homeland, forcibly kind of ripped out of the life they thought they were going to have. They, they thought life was going to work a certain way, in a certain place, with a certain kind of vibe, and all of that changed. They didn't have anything to do with it. Other forces were at work and completely extracted them from what they had hoped for. And that's what this story has led us into, that there are seasons in our lives where we probably feel something quite similar. Like there's this disjointed thing going on, maybe within, maybe between us and other people, maybe between us and God and our place in the world. And this story has been helping us watch these friends move through that experience. And we've seen that the God of the ages, the one who's come to us in Jesus, was right there with them all along. But it was a moment. Matter of fact, the scriptures are full of this exile language, this ache that I think all humans at some point encounter. There's a, a psalm, one of the prayers we find in scripture that says kind of what they were feeling. By the rivers of Babylon, Psalm 137 says, we sat, we wept, we thought of our home so far away. And then there's this really interesting picture where they say, on the branches of the willow trees, we hung our harps, we hid our hearts from the enemy. So you get this like heaviness, the instruments are hung up, where they had once sung great songs, maybe around a campfire, telling the stories of goodness and the things we would do maybe when we're camping. Those things had been put away. Life was heavy. They were ripped away. And the thing that's interesting as we walk through Daniel, and we'll keep doing it today, is we keep running into this reality that there are forces at work that have inflicted that kind of life upon people, really, as long as there's been time. Interestingly enough, I think of the voice of uh, one of the Roman emperors, Marcus Aurelius, around like 161 to 180 is when he ruled. He's also a Stoic philosopher, but he talked about that. He said, you look back over the past, changing empires that rose and fell, and you can foresee the future too. What he's saying is, whether it was pre-Daniel era, during Daniel's era, during his own era, or even here, we can look through history and see this movement of one empire rising and then falling. And you can take it in the technical sense or even in the smaller sense, these forces that rise and they get over on others, they oppress, and then another takes their place. And I, I say all that because that's what we're encountering in Daniel. But I bet in our lives we're also encountering that at times. What feels like moments where we're not in control and maybe we're under the thumb of someone else or something else. And again, this story is helping us wrestle with that, but encounter God in it. And so um, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about our text. And just to give perspective, I was reminded of a, a, a theologian, a scholar, Walter Brueggemann, and he, he said something that I think is helpful as we read the Daniel story, as we hear it today. He talked about how um, something that's remarkable, this observation you can make about the exile circumstance and what the scriptures say is that the exile didn't lead people, as heavy as it was, to abandon faith or to settle for some abdicating despair or to even retreat into just some private religion. On the contrary, exile evoked the most brilliant literature, the most daring theological articulation in the Old Testament. And he says that in, again, maybe an academic way, but what he's getting at is when we read Daniel, when we lean into stories of scripture that deal with the reality of exile, the stuff we all feel, where sometimes we're far from home, we don't know what to make of the moment, that the God of the ages is there and actually like lifts us up to live creatively, a new imagination, courage, wisdom, a way forward. 
And that's what I want to invite you into today. Courage and wisdom and a way forward as we lean into the Daniel story once more. Today we'll actually be in Daniel chapter 6, which uh, is probably, even if you're new to scripture, one of the most common or um, well-known parts of the story. When you think of Daniel, he found himself in a what? Daniel in the what? Lion's in. There you go. So that's where we're going to be together, or where we're going to be at today as we look at this together. And so I would love, as we kind of see the plot unfold, a sinister plot, mind the way, um, I'd love us to read this text together. So let's do so. Daniel chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 1 and read through 5, and then we'll walk through some things and then see how Daniel gives us a blueprint, if you will, a way to live courageous lives in the middle of moments that might feel like exile. So let's read this together. Daniel 6, verse 1. Uh, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. By the way, this is like the third king, I think, that Daniel has found himself under the rule of. They've all risen and fell, and he's still there. But this one divides the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appoints a high officer to rule over each one. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. And because of his ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. And you can feel the plot thicken here. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. So I mentioned that Daniel's like seen his life move from where he thought he would grow up, what he thought it would be, ripped away into some place he never would have chosen, actually put under the service of an enemy ruler or way, so pretty horrific, but throughout it, he trusts in the God who has come to us that we can see clearly in Jesus to sustain him. And to the point that now he is an old man, some would say even as close to maybe 80 years old. And he has endured rules that came and went, but he is still there. And the God who has taken care of him is still there. So he's an old man at this point. And what I love about this story, though, is even in his older age, there is a journey to continue. There is a formation journey that leads him into a mission to actually still help heal the world. And I love that because I think sometimes there is a narrative that says when I'm younger, I'm just aiming at doing a certain thing, accumulating certain things, and then maybe later in my life I get to tap out and just do me. But the story we're invited in is people who get to help heal the world is that there's always a journey. There's always a next. There's always another opportunity. And we see this here. The other thing I love about Daniel is like, this is not his first rodeo when it comes to dealing with people who are trying to undermine him or undo him. And I, I wonder sometimes if he just like quietly goes about his business and puts on a t-shirt maybe like this. I got this one at some point in my life from an artist friend of mine. Just says, uh, love that haters. And I, I wonder, by the way, I was going to wear it, but it seems to keep shrinking. So I don't know. I, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, 
But I love in this story that we continue to see his quiet humility, his quiet trust. There's a strength that even in the midst of all this opposition, in the midst of exile and ongoing circumstances, he seems to engage the opportunity to lean into what maybe God would want to do in him and through him for his good and for the good of those he's around. And we're invited on the same journey. And so as the story continues and we see the folks who are up to no good, we pick it, in verse, pick it up in verse six and it says, so the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now... Your majesty, issue and sign this law so it can't be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. So just want to notice a couple of things here that I think can be helpful to get a sense of just how um, kind of big and how like perplexing and how ominous this scene was for Daniel. So the word in English that we read is just they went. And it just sounds nondescript and just kind of like nothing. But the Aramaic word behind that English translation, it has a range of meaning, and they all seem to be present here. And, and one of the parts of those is they went in the company of others. So it wasn't just one person. There was this like group that got together to try to undo him, to try to get him thrown out so they could have his place. It was jealousy. But it goes beyond there. It has the notes to this word of conspiracy. And you can see that. And even rage. They were not just like, oh, this guy, let's kind of deal with him. There was like this blood boiling kind of animosity aimed at him. And that's what's behind this moment that we are reading about, where they try to get this king to put this law into effect that they know will target Daniel. The other thing, not only the word, and you can kind of see what they're up to, is they tell the king, hey, we're all in agreement. But they're actually not, because Daniel is actually one of them. He is one of the leaders. He's one of the rulers. He's one of the ones who would have had to be in agreement if all were true. So we see the dishonesty. We see again the slant that they are taking to try to trap him. And then this den of lions thing. Am I the only person who's like, wait, what? So like, imagine you're building a home and you, you know, you pick out the flooring and you like the trim and you like the tile and you love the kitchen. And you're like, we got this one bonus room. What should we do with that? Den of lions? I don't know. Like, it's just like, like who thinks of that? Um, this is pretty hideous. This is like not a gentle treatment of a human being at all. Um, and so you just see again the kind of nature of, of their plot and their plan. You see the angle. You see how they are trying to undo him and harm him. Uh, by the way, some would point to, I don't know if this is true for sure, but there's a speculation by some scholars that in that part of the world, um, there had been an ancient practice of some rulers and kingdoms would actually keep lions kind of in something like a pit, and they would use them to um, kind of put on these shows, kind of like we know uh, what happened in Rome at the Colosseum, where there would be this kind of um, simulated hunt. So maybe that's what was going on, and they were wanting to throw him in there. But you see his response throughout this story, throughout this scene, when people are coming after him, and again, not the first time, when life seems to be completely upside down and he seems to be completely alone, he seems to have this quiet strength and trust, wisdom, and courage because his God has been with him and will continue to be with him. I was thinking about how I respond uh, 
in ways less than this, I've never actually been threatened to be thrown in with lions. Uh, it's just never happened in my life. So in things that are less than that, I thought back of some of my responses when I feel like I'm being wronged or someone's out to get me. And I will just say I'm not always as gentle as Daniel. I, I even think about my own life where at times I've been tempted to want the position or place of stuff that other people have. I don't know if you're like me at all. Um, no, you're probably not. But nonetheless, I was thinking about his response to all of this, and it reminded me of Marilyn Robinson, her award-winning book, Gilead, a great novel. There's a scene in there that reminds me of kind of what we see in Daniel. She says, if you confront insult or antagonism, your first impulse would be to respond in kind. But if you think as it were, this is an emissary sent from the Lord, and some benefit is intended for me. First of all, the occasion to demonstrate my faithfulness, the chance to show that I do in some small degree participate in the grace that saved me, you are free to act otherwise than as circumstance would seem to dictate. You're free to act by your own lights. You're freed at the same time of the impulse to hate or resent that person. And we see Daniel embodying this as the story continues. Again, a way we're invited to embody as well. And as we look at how he responds specifically, I'd love to kind of use it to unpack how can we build a courageous life for our sake and for the sake of the world? Because I think that's part of the intent of the Daniel story. It was originally given to other people who were in exile to give them hope and how to live and how to walk through these kinds of scenarios. And it's offered to us when we feel like we're in that same kind of place. So how might we build a courageous life? I think the first thing we see, and we see it in his response, is we're invited to join the ongoing conversation known as prayer. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, it says, When Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room, windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. There's a few things I want to point out here. First, the notion of praying three times a day. Um, so just side note, I didn't grow up uh, being a prayerful person. Uh, I don't even know if I'm good at praying now, but I will tell you this. There is something about entering this conversation, which we see Daniel do, that has been a grace to my life and has given me more openness, more room, more perspective, more love, more healing, more hope than probably anything else, if I'm being really transparent with you. And I think we see Daniel lean into this same kind of thing. The three times a day, early on in Hebrew history and culture, we saw that people would pray rhythmically through the day. And why is that? Was it because it was required? Was it because it was a heavy demand? Was it because it was a religious duty? Some would argue that. I don't think so. I think the evidence would suggest, no, the God of the ages and the universe, the creator of all that is and all the goodness that abounds and all that we get to participate in, he creates us in his own image. And Jesus, that God who's put flesh and blood on, calls us friends. And I had the chance at camp this week to talk to campers, and we were talking about this notion of prayer. And I said, did you know God calls you friends? And I started asking them, and I'll ask you the same question. Do you like to talk to your friends? Some of you don't, so I guess, like, I don't know what you and your friends do. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Of course we do. We text our friends. We say hi. We just inner kind of weave conversation normally with the people we love, with our friends. That's what we're invited into in prayer. And so this three-time-a-day rhythm is actually a way of just leaning into what we see later in the scriptures, an invitation to the ongoing conversation, or maybe you've heard it this way, pray without ceasing. 
It doesn't mean that we just talk, talk, talk nonstop. It doesn't mean that we just come up with religious platitudes. It means, though, that we're invited into this being, in this space, in this conversational life with God. And so there's something about entering it rhythmically. And so you even see this pattern in the scriptures. Psalm 55, another one of the prayer poems we have, we see the person who, can, who put that together say, I will call on God and the Lord will rescue me morning, noon, and night. I cry out in my distress and the Lord hears my voice. This is an ancient and beautiful practice of rhythmic prayer. Well, this is what Daniel does. He, it says it's his usual practice. So think about it. When he's threatened, when he is completely exiled, when he is targeted, when he is the one who is being victimized, how does he respond? He leans into this beautiful conversation that he's always been invited into, that always gives him perspective, that always upholds him. He does what he's always done, as he's always done. It's interesting, too. I don't know if you're like me. You're like, what's up with the windows open to Jerusalem part? So remember, he's exiled. So that would have been his home. That would have been the place at that point in history where there had been a temple where God would dwell and meet people. The beautiful news for us is that with the coming of Jesus, it's not buildings that dictate where God is. The, world, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, right? And in Jesus, the Lord of the ages has come to us and walks with us and always with us. So we're not locked into a building, but the idea for him of looking towards a place or towards its direction is a remembrance it's also a longing and a hope that eventually all would be made right. And isn't that a part of our prayers? We pray with hope and longing. We enter that conversation with, come Lord Jesus, make it right. And so as I was thinking about all this, I wanted to offer you something I got to offer the campers in our story time this week. If you're like, I don't even know how I'd begin to pray. I want to give you three one word prayers and then one no word prayer. Does that feel okay? We can all remember three words. Yes. And I got to give a big shout out to Anne Lamott. She's the one who actually in a really great book uh, kind of unpacked these for me years ago, and it's been really helpful. So the first one is sometimes in life like Daniel, when stuff's going on and you don't know what to do, what's a normal word you might use when you're in a situation like that? Help. help. One word prayer number one, help. Say it with me. This is what we did at camp. All right. Say it with me. Help. Yeah. So imagine at some point in your day, you face something you don't know what to do. And what if you just paused and said, help? It's, it reminds me of like, uh, you ever been to a party and they have those little cards on the table? It's like conversation starters. You ever been to those? And like, sometimes you read them, you're like, I don't know if I would ask that question. What's beautiful about the help prompt though is you find yourself, it's like a conversation starter, help. And then just be in that space with the God who knew you needed help before you ever uttered the word and longs to help you. I wonder what that would be like for us. Help. Okay, now sometimes really beautiful things happen, like you're out in nature, you're on a hike, you're on a boat, you're doing stuff with friends, and I don't know about you, but for me, when I get these great experiences that God brings our way every day, I think there's another one-word prayer that we could embrace as part of our ongoing conversation. Wow. Say that with me. Wow. Wow. You got to say it like you mean it. Wow. wow. Yeah. Aren't there moments in our lives where that is the response? And don't we do that with our friends? You got to see this, Reese. But often more, it's me telling you about restaurants and coffee shops I went to, which is maybe why I can't fit in my shirt. But nonetheless, let's go back to wow. Okay, there are moments in our lives that is the conversation of the moment. Wow. And just kind of being caught up. There are psalms, again, those prayer poems all over scripture that sound like that. 
And I wonder if we could add that to our prayer vocabulary. Now, when wow moments happen, what is a word that would be a natural response to say? Thanks. Thanks. Come on, thanks. What if that were our third kind of one-word prayer that we just put into our lives? Um, I was thinking about this, and a, a person whose writings I've appreciated, Meister Eckhart, once said, if the only prayer you ever say in your whole life is thank you, that would suffice. I kind of agree with them. I woke up this morning and I didn't make it happen. I didn't put air in my lungs. I didn't keep my heart beating. I, I'm not self-made, by the way. I've done some work in my life. I was reflecting recently. I am the beneficiary of so many generous people, so much love, so much grace, so much forgiveness. I don't know how I'm going to say anything but thanks. You with me? Three one-word prayers. Now, Here's a no-word prayer, because you ever have those moments in your life where you have big feelings, anxiety, fear, the weighty stuff? Of course we do, right? And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I just don't have the word. I can say help, but there's a thing even under the surface I don't know what to do with when I say help. And so I'll show you another prayer, because we can pray with our bodies and our posture and our breathing. And this is what I found helpful. And we offered this to the kids. And it was interesting. I had a mom the next day come back and say, hey, last night, we were just kind of all at the end of our rope. And she said, did you teach the kids some little prayer thing? And I was like, well, yeah. I, I didn't know if this was a good moment or not. Like, um, <laughs> and because uh, I have taught kids things I shouldn't probably before. But nonetheless, I'm a safe person. Nonetheless. Um, but she says, she says, we were in our van last night. And everything was kind of going off the rails. And she said, we were just in it. And one of my kids just goes, and this is the posture, the no word prayer. And she looked at him like, what are you doing? She's like, well, we learned this. And then they said, do it. She's like, okay. But uh, I think the van wasn't moving at that point. Um, and then she takes a breath. <sighs> are there ever moments where that's kind of all we can muster up? I don't know what to do with this. So I'm going to offer it to you, God. And I'm going to take a big breath. And I'm going to trust you. I wonder what it would look like for us to join Daniel with a rhythm of prayer, with those three one-word prayers, and maybe at times when we don't know what to do, just do this. I know it's been a real help in my life. It again starts to root me back into the conversation known as prayer, which is one of the ways that Daniel built a courageous life, and I would invite you into it as well. I would invite you into it. And Jesus even says something that I think resonates with what Daniel did. He goes and he prays. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you might use help or wow in a different way or whatever, but we get to pray even in hard moments for the people who are maybe causing a hard moment. But I want to invite you. You might be here and be like, I've never done this before. And I, I kind of want to lean in. I would just encourage you with these words by Teresa of Avila. Prayer is nothing else than being on terms of friendship with God. I go back to that. The God of the ages calls you friend, and you have full access. And that is a courageous act to lean into prayer, however you see fit in the moment. So that's what Daniel does. The second thing that I think we see him do that can be so helpful with building a courageous life is to embrace what I would call the little big way of faithfulness. 
Daniel 6.16 says, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. If you look at different translations of Scripture, it says faithfully or continually or in a loyal way. Like Daniel was just known over all these years from a teenager who was taken prisoner and forced to live somewhere he didn't want to to now being an old man. He was known to be one who was just faithful. And it happened in big moments. I mean, don't we read about stuff like there are narcissistic kings he had to deal with and statues and interpreting dreams and all kinds of crazy moments. But again, for 66 years, he's in this place of exile and we don't know all the stories that happen. There's more we don't know than what we do know. And that's what I call the little that actually is part of the big. It's like you and I, don't we live lives where there are the big moments, but aren't there some moments it's just like doing the dishes and doing the laundry and getting your kids where they need to go and loving the person next to you and doing work and no one knows about it. It's the little stuff that makes a life. It's the little stuff that actually weaves its way in when the big moments come, faithfulness. And that's what we see. I was thinking about this and did you know that God's people throughout time, so Jesus comes on the scene as life, death, and resurrection. And there were a group of people who were like, how are we going to kind of lean into this story? And they created a calendar. And so maybe you've heard of seasons like Advent. They're actually not made to be like overly formal. What Advent was, was to start with the incarnation of Jesus, to remember the God who's come close. And then the calendar keeps going through things like Lent and Easter, where we prepare for the resurrection. But check this out. Did you know the vast majority of that calendar these early Jesus followers put together? Think of this creative uh, title they gave for it. You ready for it? The biggest majority of it is called Ordinary Time. Ordinary Time. 33 or 4 of the 52 weeks of the year are ordinary time. Isn't that where most of our life is lived? And Daniel was known to be faithful in the ordinary and the extraordinary. And Jesus does this too. Jesus says in John 17, in a prayer to God, the same God that he links us up with, the Father, I brought you glory here on earth by completing um, the work you gave me to do. I, I was faithful. But think of this. We only know three of the 33 years of Jesus' life. We don't know the other 30 the normal, the ordinary time when he's working a job and dealing with relationships. But he could say with confidence, I was faithful. Daniel embodied faithfulness in this little big way. And you're invited to do that too. I think that's the courageous way of living. I was thinking about this. And if you're like me, sometimes I can look at my life and be like, okay, I nailed it there, but I did not get it right there. I want you to hear these words by Brennan Manning. I think they're so helpful when we think about embracing faithfulness. He says, what makes authentic disciples is not visions, ecstasies, biblical mastery, or spectacular success. And those are all good and fine. I'm not diminishing them. But he says, it's a capacity for faithfulness. Buffeted by the fickle winds of failure, battered by their own unruly emotions, bruised by rejection and ridicule, authentic disciples may have stumbled and frequently fallen, endured lapses and relapses, yet they keep coming back to Jesus. That's what we get invited to do. That's what faithfulness looks like. Coming back home over and over and over again. And you're invited into that today. We embrace the little big way of faithfulness. The normal, the ordinary, and the spectacular. And then the third way I think that we build a courageous life for our sake and the sake of the world is we trust the one who can do what we cannot. Daniel 6, 22 to 23. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. Pause. 
Remember, the law was passed. Daniel goes home to pray and then has to deal with the fallout. The king made the law. In their culture, you couldn't change your mind about a law, so it was locked in. And so Daniel does find himself thrown into a den of lions. The den of lions is the thing that you're not supposed to come back from. And you, many of you in this room, I think have probably endured things that you're probably not supposed to come back from. But the God of the ages can do things we cannot do. And trusting him is the way of the courageous life. Daniel says, God sent the angel to shut the lion's mouths. The king was so overjoyed when, when this happened, when he went and found Daniel well and fine, and that God had protected him, he ordered Daniel be lifted from the den, and not a scratch was found on him because he had trusted in God. I've been reading this book by a guy named David McPherson, a philosopher. It's called The Virtues of Limits. He says, human beings seek to transcend limits. This is part of our potential greatness, since it's how we can realize what is best in our humanity. However, the limit-transcending feature of human life is also part of our potential downfall. I don't say this as an affront to you, but you can't do everything, and neither can I. We have limits. But the God of the ages has come close and can do what we cannot, as inviting us with Daniel, with all people who've experienced exile and that ache to trust. That's the invitation. The king of Daniel's story are like case studies in the folly of an overinflated sense of self. But Daniel, the courageous one, shows us another way. And so you and I are invited again to trust. I love how Maya Angelou says it. Have enough courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. Today, may the Spirit of God give you strength to trust one more time. That the one that you may not be able to see, but who has always seen you and is always with you, will uphold you and take care of you. And may it develop in you a tenacious and beautiful trust for your good and the good of the world. And maybe you're like me and you want to trust, but kind of like the faithfulness thing. You look back to moments maybe you didn't and you look to moments you're not sure. I love this. A, a book that I've appreciated called The Abandonment to Divine Providence. The author says, to, a, to escape the distress, the distress caused by regret for the past or fear about the future, this is the rule to follow. Leave the past to the infinite mercy of God. The future to his good providence and give the present wholly to his love by being faithful to his grace. That's what Daniel did. That's what we're invited into. And listen to how the story ends because of Daniel's courageous way. This king who again would have been an enemy. This king who had his own order of gods that he would have looked to and followed says these words because of what Daniel lived in, because of what he saw. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This is a king who has no faith in God at his meeting of Daniel, but experiences through the life of one courageous, humble, quiet person, the way of wisdom, the way of courage, the way of love, what we know, and we have the benefit of history to see, the way of Jesus. And he makes this declaration 
about God's goodness and faithfulness. Did you know when we live courageous lives, not only us, but the people we live among get to experience God also as rescuer and helper and good and powerful. Our neighbors, our friends, our family members. This is the stuff that helps heal the world. Your courageous life partnered with the life of the person you're sitting with, partnered with me and all those who follow Jesus. This is God's plan to make the world right. Embodied courage in the way of wisdom that looks so much like Jesus. Remember, he's the one who tells us or shows us even in his darkest moment, his moment of giving himself sacrificially on the cross. He says this to God and he says it for our benefit as well. Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. I trust you with what I can't control. He's also quoting there another one of those prayer psalms or poems from Psalm 31.5. Because prayer in the faithful way had led him to a place of trust. And he invites us to trust him. And you know what I love? We trust because of what he's done for us. His life, his death, his resurrection, his own giving of himself to take on our brokenness, to take on our unfaithfulness, to take on the stuff I cannot do for myself. Jesus has dealt with that in himself. It's why we step to the communion table every week. We take the bread representing the broken body of Christ for our brokenness. We take the cup reminding us that Jesus sacrificially was poured out to take care of the sins of the world, to take care of what all empires do, to take care of all the things we're not supposed to come back from. And he puts us back together with God and each other and ourselves and sends us out to be courageous people who trust, who are filled with hope for the good of the world. And so would you stand with me? I'd like to pray with you. And I would like to invite you into this embodied way of leaning into trust. That's what communion is. We trust the God who gave himself for us completely to have our back, to have our future, to take care of us in every moment from now until forever. And so I'd love to pray with you. Father, thank you that we can gather together today on this beautiful day you've made. You've woken us up. You've brought us together with all of our stories and all of the things that are moving within us and all the things we're thinking about and care about and our personalities and all the beautiful diversity that makes us who we are. You've brought us together today. And you have a design and a desire to infuse us with wisdom and courage and love for our sake and the sake of the world. So I wanna pray with my friends today who feel like maybe they're in exile. Things feel disjointed, they feel far away from home, so to speak. Not as an address, but just kinda, again, that disjointed reality with you, with themselves, with others. I pray for those who are in that space that today they would take encouragement. They are invited into that conversation of prayer because you call us friends. And I pray we'd lean in. I pray for those of us who maybe have seen our lives as mundane or just ordinary, that we would be encouraged today. No, it's in the mundane, the ordinary, that the beautiful is happening. And that's what faithfulness looks like, to keep going. I pray that we would be encouraged today by Daniel, who didn't just get old and tap out, but he continued to be formed and given himself to the mission to help heal the world. We are invited into the same. And I pray for all of us today 
that we could open our hands and trust. Jesus, you love us. I have no language to even describe it, but we look at how you have given yourself up for us on the cross and how in your resurrection, you have overcome all sin and death and everything that feels like death. And so we are invited now to step to the table, to trust you, to take the broken bread, your broken body for our brokenness, to dip it in the cup, your blood poured out to make everything right. What seemed like defeat was the actual way the world gets put back together. And I pray today we would take that act of trust and faith and follow you into what's next. We open ourselves to you for your goodness, the goodness you showed Daniel and the goodness you have for us. And we thank you for it. Amen. I'd like to invite you in the next couple minutes as we prepare to be sent out back to the places we live and love. But before we go, I'd love to invite you as you're ready to come to the table of communion. We have some friends who are gonna be at the two tables in the front and one in the back. And again, this is a beautiful act of trust. The table set by the Lord for you, the one who welcomes you, who calls you friend, the one who is with you always, invites you to come trust and then be sent out with that newfound courage and hope and love for your sake and the sake of the world. So come as you're ready.